0: Well, good afternoon, and it's great to have the opportunity to take a few minutes away from whatever this morning held for you and to have a look at this bit of the book of Esther together. Now, it might not seem much like it when you look down at the first few verses of the passage that we've just had read for us. But Esther's actually a book of celebration. It's read every year at the Jewish Feast of Purim. And as Christians, celebration is one thing we like to think we're good at. It's what we do every Sunday, Christmas, Easter, Pentecost. We even managed to celebrate in lockdown. I hope you did. But if you're anything like me, and in this series on God in the workplace, I guess I'm speaking especially to those of us who, like me, will have been spending this morning in the workplace. Maybe you're watching this after a morning there. If you're anything like me, Things can feel very certain and clear on a Sunday, but a lot less certain at 9.42 on a Thursday. On Sunday, Jesus Christ is Lord, and that's obvious and brilliant and beautiful and certain, and we rightly praise him for it. But when you're in the middle of a tough day at work, and Zoom call number seven is over, and your mind turns to that decision you know you need to take, and you don't know what will happen next when you do, well, then the idea that Jesus Christ is Lord doesn't seem to make that much of a difference. It's not that you're less certain of it. It's not that it's less true. But it's just not the thing that I want certainty about right then. I want to know that what's going to happen next is going to be fine. And so the certainties that we say we believe just don't feel relevant to the uncertainties of what might or might not happen today, tomorrow, in five minutes. So here's a question. And it's a question that the book of Esther helps us answer. Is there a connection between the certain future we celebrate on a Sunday and the uncertain futures we face on Thursdays? We're picking up the story at its lowest point. I'm not sure whether you noticed that. But let me take you back to the beginning of the story so you know how we got there. Time for an Old Testament history lesson. God's people then were the Jews, the Jewish people, Israel. And if you know anything about their story, you'll know that sin is a big part of it. They go from bad to worse to even worse. God arranges for the Assyrian and Babylonian armies to invade. Many of their people were force marched into exile on the other side of the known world. Empires kept gobbling each other up. And so by the time we get to the beginning of the Book of Esther, we find Israel at the heart of the ancient Persian Empire. And to make it worse, while the anti-Semitism that plagues both our history books and our headlines is appalling, It's hardly a new idea. The story begins with a series of unlikely events. Xerxes, he's the king, the emperor. Xerxes wants to parade the queen in front of all his nobles. She refuses. We're not told whether she was sticking up for herself or whether she just can't be bothered to get up from her own separate feast. But either way, this isn't a world where women's rights mean much at all. Xerxes has her executed. We then meet Esther, she's an orphan brought up by her cousin Mordecai. The king is looking for a new queen. Esther ends up in the king's harem. It seems pretty unlikely that she had any choice in the matter at all. He goes through the harem one girl a night, and she ends up the new queen. It's disgusting. But this is one of those times where the Bible just tells us what happened, because, well, sadly it is what happened. The crux of the matter for our story is that through all that human sin, Xerxes, this emperor, this great emperor, finds himself married to a Jew, the despised people in his empire. Not that he knows that. Sometime later, an ancient family rivalry blows up between Mordecai and Haman, one of the king's advisors. The ethics of it, if you delve into the details, are grey and complicated, but what starts out as a public offence to Haman turns into a full-blown attempt at genocide, and his plans are state-sponsored, a chilling reminder of 1930s Germany, perhaps. And so by the time we get to the beginning of chapter four, the stakes for God's people couldn't be higher. Jews everywhere are in sackcloth and ashes, funeral clothes. Do turn back to Esther 4 if you've got a Bible to hand. I've got just two points for you this afternoon. Firstly, Esther knows very little about the future. And to be honest, at the start of our passage, she doesn't seem to know much about the present either. Outside the palace, you can't miss what's going to happen to the Jews. The whole empire knows. But take a look at verses four and five. Esther has to send a messenger to go and find out what's troubling Mordecai so much. She even tries to send him something nice to wear instead. It would be tactless if she knew. It would be like sending someone Cinderella's sparkling ball gown to wear at a funeral. But she's in the palace bubble. Morning clothes aren't allowed there. She hasn't got a clue what's going on. She doesn't know. It seems to take an age for the messenger to come back. Today she'd be looking down at her phone, checking for a reply. Had the message even been read? But eventually she gets Mordecai's request in verse 8 to use her position to beg for mercy for her people. And that's the point where things get even more uncertain. She doesn't know how the king will respond. She can't just go and speak to him like anyone normal would. Maybe catch him for a quick word while he's brushing his teeth or whatever. Well, that's not exactly an option. Instead, she's either got to be summoned by the king or she's got to risk her life. Take a look at verses 13 and 14. Look what Mordecai doesn't say. Esther, don't you know that God always delivers his people? Of course, it's going to be fine when you go and see the king. It's going to be fine. But Mordecai doesn't say that. He can't say that. He doesn't know that everything is going to be fine. Who knows, he says. Who knows but that you've come to your royal position for such a time as this. And as she finally walks into the throne room in chapter five, she still doesn't know. She's standing there. You can imagine the silence, listening to her heart beat. He moves his hand to the scepter, but still, she doesn't know. Will he lift it and let her speak? Or will he order her to her death? Of course, we can read on. He's pleased to see her. Eventually, she's able to speak up for her people. They are delivered, and Haman ends up hung on his own scaffold. The Jewish readers knew how the story ended, too. They would have heard it read every time at Purim. But Esther didn't know all that. For all she knew, her last meal before she started fasting at the the end of chapter four might have been her last meal ever. It would be easy to look at Esther's courage and say, yes, we should be like her. But life is not that simple. And this story doesn't let us do that. From Esther's point of view, the risk was real. If I perish, I perish, she says in verse 16. God is her creator and she is part of his creation. He writes the story and knows what's on the next page, but Esther is one of the characters and she does not. And actually I find that encouraging because that's what my life is like. It's full of not knowing. Sometimes I'd quite like to be the master of my fate and decide what will happen next, but I'm not the master of my fate. God rarely tells us what exactly is around the corner. We're characters, not the author. We're creation, not the creator. And that means that this isn't a call to foolhardy risk-taking. Look at Esther, she fasts, and we do well to follow her example. But she also thinks things through. If you'll pardon the project management speech, she mitigates the risk with a phased implementation strategy. Or as verse 8 puts it, if the king regards me with favor and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. Even speaking to the king was enough risk for one day. She thought about it, letting him know that he'd accidentally agreed to kill yet another one of his wives and all her relatives could wait. Like you and me on a Thursday morning, Esther and Mordecai had to think and they had to pray. It's tempting to think that being one of God's people might make us a little immune to risk, maybe. I prayed about it, so it'll be fine. I'm a Christian, so that will never happen to me. We're a Christian organisation, a church perhaps, so God will see us through. But that's the same temptation that Satan throws at Jesus when he tells him to throw himself off the top of the temple and wait for the angels to catch him. Jesus doesn't give in then, because even though he's the creator, he chose not to make use of that. He'd become a character in God's story, just like you and me. You might remember the answer he gave Satan. Do not put your Lord to the test. Risk is real for Christians. But to move on to our second point, Esther was also able to be courageous. Despite the very real risk and everything she didn't know, she was able to be courageous. Why was that? Well, let's reread Mordecai's words in verse 14 again. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. Yes, what would happen next was uncertain. But for Mordecai and for Esther, there was something that is certain. God would deliver his people. In fact, if we read on to the end of chapter 6, even Haman's wife, Zeresh, knows that. Let me read verse 13 of chapter 6. Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. Well, how can they be so certain? Esther's courage isn't foolhardy courage. It comes from knowing who she is. God might not get a mention in Esther's story and Esther might look right now much more like a Persian queen, but actually she's a member of God's people. Her story was part of their story. It's the story of how the people of the earth chose to write their own story with themselves as the heroes instead of remembering who they really were in God's story. It's the story of how God gave them different languages so that they tell lots of conflicting stories of their own greatness instead of writing one long story of humanity's greatness without God's name where it should be on the front cover. It's the story of how that divided them into nations who fought each other and formed empires to allow them to institutionalise their violence against each other, like the great Persian empire that Esther found herself in the middle of. But that story that Esther knew was also the story of how God created a tiny, insignificant nation and made promises to them. For Esther and Mordecai, the key point was this. God had told them where their story was going and how it would end. You might remember what God promised Abraham in Genesis 12, way back then. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And that's what Esther could be certain of as she went in to see the king. She didn't know whether she was going to her death, but she did know that somehow her people weren't going extinct. She didn't know whether her actions then and there would be the way that God chose to deliver them from Haman. But she did know that someone's actions somewhere would be The risk she faced was real. Her caution was only sensible, but she was nevertheless able to be courageous because God wasn't going to let that be the end of his people. And the wonderful thing is that now we're part of that story too. Because right after those verses I read from Genesis 12, God made Abraham one more promise. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. All peoples. When God created Israel, he wasn't It wasn't about keeping other nations away. The end goal was a people where anyone and everyone could become a full citizen. And now that his great story of how Jesus delivered us from death is ready to tell the world, we've become the church. We're a people without borders, with our citizenship in heaven. And so today, those promises to Abraham that Esther was able to rely on are his promises to us. The church isn't going to go extinct, it's going to grow. And if we look at history and we look around the world, it is growing. Persecution, prayerlessness, disengaged congregations, corruption, ineffective leadership and spiritual abuse are all too real. The prosperity gospel, the implications of coronavirus for the church, the way that that thing at church that maybe comes to mind isn't run or isn't done in the way that you think it should be. Our lack of zeal for evangelism, the decline of the Christian voice in the public square, the way we treat church as if we were consumers. These things might be chapters in our story, but they're not how the story ends well, that's something worth celebrating, isn't it? Although the celebration usually stops when we're in the thick of it on a Thursday afternoon. But you see, that was what it was like for Esther too. Her book is a book where God isn't mentioned. Esther is a Thursday afternoon kind of book. Here's the bit that made the difference for Esther. Esther didn't stop being a Jew the moment the palace door shut behind her. She didn't stop being part of a people who were going to be God's way of blessing all nations when she walked into the throne room of one of the greatest empires on earth. Sure, she couldn't skip to the end of the 10 chapters of her story like we can. But she did know which story they were a part of. So perhaps take a moment to think. Is there something that you're scared of doing that might be right to do? because you're a Christian, because you're part of the people through whom Jesus is blessing the world. Perhaps there's someone or something you could, you should possibly stand up for. Perhaps there's something you might need to say no to or yes to. Perhaps you need to speak an uncomfortable truth in love. She isn't okay. He shouldn't have done that thing. You did that thing and you shouldn't have. And Did they know that the reason you're thinking that way about that decision is because you're a Christian? Now, I can't tell you what you should do. In fact, God probably won't tell you the details either, at least not directly. But have you at least considered it? You are meant to be part of a people who are a blessing to the nations, after all. No, you don't know what will happen next. Exactly what you feared would happen might happen, but god's story is going to happen through us somehow yes through jesus first but then through his spirit it's going to happen through us and when he comes back we will celebrate a much greater feast than purim with him like esther who knows could you have been brought to the position you're in for such a time as this